Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over a hundred social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Missing on the Crawl Space Media Network. If you like this show, you will love Crawl Space, which is also hosted by us. We launched Crawl Space in 2017, and we have a huge catalog of incredible and thought-provoking interviews. Check out our entire network of shows at crawlspace-media.com. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Tim, I couldn't be any better. If I was any better, guess what? I'd be you. (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great as well, Lance. And for this episode, we speak with the new investigators on staff who are volunteering for private investigations for the missing. They are working on the disappearance of Phoenix Colden, 
from Spanish Lake, Missouri in December of 2011. And they were a part of the previous two episodes we released in Phoenix Colden's disappearance. Of course, we also had Goldia Colden, Phoenix's mom, on those episodes. So we didn't hear too much from the Wylands. But Vanessa and Andrew Wyland are in this episode, and it's just them. And it's probably going to be a two-parter, and I think it's very informative. Oh, it totally is. And I love the fact that we are doing this series now on a missing person, and we've introduced the missing person, we've introduced members of the family all through private investigations for the missing, and the previous episodes, we introduced Goldia Colden, the incomparable Goldia Colden. She had an incredible interview with us, really opened up, and hopefully there'll be more conversations with uh, that strong woman, and now I, I feel like unofficially in my head, I'm I'm taking this as an meet the investigators segment of private investigations for the missing and the awareness that we're putting out there. So you meet the um, missing person, you meet the family or friends, maybe a journalist, but now you should know where the investigators are coming from. And the Wylands are such a cool couple with their great organization, Lakefront Investigations. And they are doing a wonderful job managing both the investigation of Phoenix's disappearance and the relationship between us and the Coltons. And check out their site at lakefrontinvestigative.com. And why don't you check out Investigations for the Missing, too, PIs for the Missing. Check them out at investigationsforthemissing.org. This wonderful couple, the Wylands, recently volunteered, and this is now the second case that they're working on with PIs for the Missing. They actually uh, solved the first case that they uh, worked on for PIs for the Missing, Lance, um, very, very quickly, uh, which we discussed a little bit in this interview. Well, they're they're nothing if not efficient and thorough, and uh, they they get along really well. It's It's really fun, if that's a good word to use, to watch their dynamic and... I learned that Andy smokes a pipe with tobacco in it like Sherlock Holmes, which is also very, very cool. Yeah, they do have great personalities as well, and it's it's nice to see them bounce off each other. Um, so I hope you find this interview informative, and we're going to be back with more coverage on the disappearance of Phoenix Colden. We are not done by a long shot here. And please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And check out all of our fine programs at crawlspace-media.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Vanessa and Andrew Wyland. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you. How are you guys? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. Oh, you're welcome back anytime. And uh, it is pronounced Wyland. It is. Still. Still. Okay, good. Because it looks just like Wieland. Mm. Oh, so I've heard Wieland. Vanessa. Yeah, most people say Waylon, and we, I actually just answer to it. I don't even correct it now. So <laughs> it was my fault the first time we interviewed. I, I probably should have asked. I definitely assumed Wayland at first. 
if anybody were to correct uh, Tim on how to pronounce your last name, Goldia Colden was probably the right person to have it stick in place for the rest of your life. You'll never forget that last name now. It's a great point. I will forever ask uh, before we start rolling. <laughs> Thank you, Goldia. <laughs> Uh, she she is a badassery on another level just with all the things that she's done in her life and and with everything that's happened um she definitely you can see that california social worker come through very often so bless her heart (laughs) lance you um when you had talked to her you had said something that was difficult that might for some people have been difficult to recover from i I feel like you handled that very professionally and very compassionately. It was something, and she did too, you know, in her way, she's been struggling with that too. It is, it is, I think human nature. When we're talking about historical events, it's human nature to slip into the past tense, but it is very important to the Coldens. It's very important to us, to all of us at private investigations are the missing too, right? That we do carry forward that, that, that kind of underlying belief that we are going to find that person. We're going to find that person alive and well, because that's what keeps us moving. And, and, yeah. and it's, and it's what, what I believe to be true as well. I believe that, that not to get too far ahead of us, for, forgive me, but I, I do believe that Phoenix is alive and well. Oh, and, and I do, I do as well. And to use the person in the past tense. Uh, and I, and I knew it the second I said it, the second I said it and I, and I said it in the same sentence, uh, was to is I corrected myself, but then she made sure she corrected me as well that she was not going to carry on the conversation if we referred to her in the past tense. And it was uh, it was a quick slip that she didn't let go. And I a hundred percent appreciate her not letting that go because I really feel like that has to be stressed as well. That when people cover missing person cases, all too often they say uh, they refer to the person in the past tense. I even try now to not even use the word case. Uh, missing person cases. Um, I, I and I'm still working on that. Uh, I try to use stories, uh, a missing person story or uh, a missing person um, event, something like that. Uh, something because cases, I just feel like ah, just lump, lumps them in to all the cases: cold cases, open cases, closed clo- closed cases. It's just very impersonal. But no, she. Uh, much like your last name, I will probably never make that mistake again because the image of of her face hovering around me when i'm talking about one of these missing persons uh it will never go away when i saw her face change when i said it and i was like damn it no damn it (laughs) yeah and if and if that was an uncomfortable moment for you and you both had a learning moment from goldia please imagine just Put yourselves in our shoes for a moment. Goldie has taught us a lot of lessons. We and she has learned some lessons from us too. I will say, Vanessa, that we've really come together as a team. We're coming together still as a team. Uh, but I just, I can't say. I personally can't say enough nice things about Goldie. I, I think I just think she's a fantastic person, and Lawrence is a is a fantastic person. Of course, the the extent to which we know our clients is limited to Zoom calls phone calls, emails, and texts, but hopefully like uh, Goldia had talked about and, and, and Lawrence had mentioned to you all previously when we, when we privately all spoke with Lawrence that uh, Vanessa and I will get an opportunity to sit down and, and maybe break bread with him soon. 
Okay, so you haven't met yet. Um, can we ask a little bit about your background? Where are you guys from and where are you currently? I'm from all over. Uh, I'm an Army brat. And of course, we raised our children as Air Force brats. Um, I think I still, uh, to this day, claim Texas as home. Um, although, you know, I really was raised mostly between Germany, North Carolina, and New York. Um, but we lived the longest in Texas. That's where we created most of our children's memories and things like that. So, uh, but right now we are on the East Coast up in Maryland. Um, some say South, some say East Coast, depending on what part of Maryland you're in. Um, but that's where we, we are right now. That's where we're licensed. Very good. Well, Maryland is a, is a wonderful state and uh, you two are wonderful people. You... Um are part of the private investigations for the missing team now. How did you get involved with PIs for the missing? Uh, I guess take us back to how you got involved with investigations in the first place. Ooh, man. Um, so I guess uh, for, for me, I dragged Andy into this uh, a bit, kicking and screaming a little bit, um, you know, moving away from the DOD side to the uh, civilian side, I guess. Um, so I've always kind of been interested in doing this sort of work, um, but between school and work and things like that up until a few years ago, just the, the time wasn't there. Um, I did volunteer with uh, like the sheriff's department, the crisis intervention unit um, as a uh, child um, uh, court appointed special advocate for children, things like that. Um, so I've been uh, kind of skirting around the, the sort of um, uh, I guess, this area for, for a while. And uh, when we got here, um, we just kind of got clued into um, cases mostly dealing around, um, I would say, not just African-American girls and boys that were going missing, um, but I think that the factor is the poverty line. Um, so a lot of kids that are uh, in the system for various reasons. Um, race, of course, has to do with it. Cl uh, class or, or, or um, income had a lot to do with it. And so just uh, people that were maybe uh, falling below, um, for lack of a better word, the cut line um, that were going missing or, or disappearing or unfortunately that were murdered. And it didn't seem like a lot of attention was being paid to those cases. Um, and when they were, a lot of it became about the victim, um, the victim's history or um, the things that they might have done that are skirting, you know, proper, maybe, you know, uh, proper etiquette or, or manners, those kinds of things. Um, and I think that in all of those peoples, we saw children, you know, um, they weren't 18 or 23 they were our kids. That led me to a group called um, Trace Labs. And I've talked to you guys about that before, um, crowdsourcing missing persons. And uh, I know a lot of people are kind of anti Reddit Bureau of Investigations and, and anti crowdsourcing law enforcement work, but um, they really set up a great platform for people to um, come together and use their skills in OSINT in, um, uh, active, uh, I guess, more active measures uh, to kind of find uh, missing people and, and to um, uh, 
have people put a little skin in the game. Um, so I got involved with that, uh, told Andy about it. He really seemed to like it, but didn't participate as much because he's more of an uh, active hands-on person. And so um, then uh, we looked a little bit more, seeing how we could get more involved. And that led me to uh, Lou Barry um, and Bruce in Private Investigations for the Missing. And so um, we went and got our PI licenses and talked to Bruce and Lou, and the rest is history. I like how you said we went and got our private investigator licenses. Um, what's the process? Because you made it sound like you went and bought one at the supermarket. Is there a, uh, is there a process in place? So um, honestly, so in Maryland, you do have to, um, you, you have to go through a certain set of training with a uh, licensed private investigations agency. They have to be allowed to train and all of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, the Maryland State Police um, own the process. Um, so you go into uh, this training, and I believe it's got to be 42 hours, if I'm not mistaken, 40 or 42 hours. So it's a whole week. Um, normally, it's a whole week. Uh, we, of course, did uh, several weeks of um, lessons. And then you also have to kind of outline like your history. So there's background checks and that sort of thing. Um, many of the folks that went through class with us, they did it for um, uh, to get their concealed carry. Um, and so it kind of, um, it, it sort of serves both purposes. You could do it for uh, more security or you could do it for more uh, private investigation. After the background checks are done and all of that, uh, then you do, you get your license. So um, of course we cannot we are not our own agency. Uh, we work for another agency, um, but they have allowed us uh, quite a lot of latitude based on our backgrounds um, and, and working with um, PIFTM. It sounds pretty cool. And uh, so I, I got a couple of questions. Andrew, I think you said OSINT. I'm curious what that is. And I also want to know um, how you both complement each other as investigators. I guess what I'm asking is what are your strengths? From open uh, from OSINT, we're talking, you know, of course, open source intelligence, and uh, that's something that um, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, going back to my early my early career in the military as a as an intelligence uh, military intelligence guy, um, I jokingly, yeah, my my buddies and I jokingly considered the OSINT folks kind of, oh, yeah, they're the ones that read newspapers and tell you what's going, tell everybody what's going on in the world. Thanks for reporting the news. Fast forward 20 some years and some maturity of thought, OSINT's a very powerful tool, incredibly powerful tool, especially as, uh, you know, that was my, my jokes and uh, aside, that, that, was, that was my view back in 1990, between 98, 2001, maybe. Um, I was even doing coding at that time on the side for fun, you know, to kind of learn how to code and stuff. Um, but 20 some years forward, it's the most, it's, it's probably one of the, the most in, important tools that at any investigator, whether you're doing it for military intelligence, uh, you know, government intelligence activities or investigations at the state, uh, local level, U S level, it's, it's an incredible tool. So, um, Vanessa can speak more specifically about it. She, because she's been studying it so closely, uh, and it is an area that I'm very interested in personally. I just haven't gotten that depth of knowledge and experience that Vanessa's had. 
Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, Andy captured it all there. And I think that it's not norm. It's not necessarily just the maturity of thought for people, but it's the maturity of of our information systems, I guess. Um, so we've moved from a non-internet to an internet age. And then along with that, um, people have developed a taste for what I like to say is relentless self-promotion, which is a good thing for us as investigators, right? They're constantly posting, constantly you know, videotaping themselves. And we, we could see with the recent events in the capital, you know, um, OSINT is a lot more than translating foreign language newspapers. You know, we're, we're in a second or, or third wave even of um, what open source information um, means and, and what it can do. And uh, so a lot of times, you know, they like to call computer people or people that do digital forensics or open source informa- uh, intelligence, that kind of thing. Um, they call those kinds of investigators like armchair detectives. But honestly, a lot of the things that we should be doing, a lot of the things that we do now, um, we should start uh, with all of the information that's online. Otherwise, if we're just going out and canvassing, um, you know, interviewing without that background knowledge, we're doing a disservice to our clients. But you are talking mostly about social media when uh, when you're talking about that at this point, right? W- what people choose to share. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of it is cloaked in, um, you know, oh, look at my bullet journal, you know, and I'm going to be selling these things on the side. So it's great for us to see that because we're we're actually getting the most out of people there. It's, you know, because they're making it a business, because they... Um, are making it, I mean, a lot of people can't connect uh, in person. So, so they're doing it online. They're, they're trying for, for that sort of human connection. And so, I mean, that's great for us not to, you know, not to say it meanly or anything like that, but uh, especially when we were doing the trace lab, some of the CTFs, I mean, we were able to find locations, the current locations of these people that were, um, uh, listed as missing because they, you know, make a, you know, a kid makes a separate Facebook account thinking that their parents wouldn't notice, but we could notice, we could see, we could track it down and, um, you know, able to provide current location data. And I want to, uh, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole of what happened on January 6th at the Capitol, but what were your thoughts when you watched the footage that started coming out in the subsequent days where people were actually showing their face like a selfie showing what was happening using their own names in these videos and then posting them so on social media what were your thoughts do, I, I mean how how do you think that they knew that they were committing this this crime i know for me all i could think of was man you guys are worried about 5g <laughs> you're your own worst enemy like that that's all i could really think about as a defense contractor, retired, now military, I can say whatever I want. <laughs> yes, first of all, my, my initial reaction was um, right. I was sick. All of my colleagues and friends and brothers and sisters were just sick. And I, that's kind of where, when you even mentioned it, <laughs> when you brought it up, I, I know that there was a part of me that just shut down because I, I was focused, I was hard focused on that event. Uh, disgusting, disgusting. Uh, do they, now to your point though, right? 
do do I think that uh, they understood the full gravity and the second and third and fourth order of effects that stem from putting your face out there, your your whole face, your countenance, everything, your whole intention. That, that that's amazing. There is a the the big when we now we're talking about cyber type things, right? Cyber type considerations and and monitoring behavior. And that's that's OSINT too, right? Monitoring online behaviors and looking at just watching what groups and people are doing. We knew that leading up to this, that this group of people were talking actively, actively laying out, uh, we're going to do this. And then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do this. They were putting that on social media. I won't cast blame on any group of people even though I can as a, a private citizen, I, I'm free to do that. Uh, professionally, that's not nice. Um, but I don't know what happened. I wasn't in the rooms, in those rooms with those analysts as this information was being looked at. I don't know if the information was even seen, but the fact that these folks walked into the, that building, uh, which I consider sacred, I consider it a sacred building. You know, um, I understand there's, that's possibly contentious. I, I consider it a sacred building for America for the United States, and for them to go in there and put their faces out in public, knowing full well that they were going to take full, they believed they were hard locked in their upside down beliefs, hard locked. So long answer, uh, long opinion to your very simple question, do they, do I think that they, they understood what they were doing? Yeah, of course they understood what they're doing. They thought they were on the winning side of history. And I'm telling you, they're not. And uh, this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll jump off my soapbox, gentlemen uh, and Vanessa. I, I will tell everybody that, yes, there are these groups of people that have done this thing on January 6, 2020. There, there are groups of people out there that subscribe to these types of thoughts who think that that's the right side of history to belong on, to be on. But... Uh, we, Vanessa and I, we have a lot of friends and there are more of us than there are of them. And we have much, you know, much more resources at our disposal. So please, America, don't think for a moment that we are under siege by this small group that we cannot contain them. We took on ISIS. We took on all these other groups. We can contain this small little, these people who are just upside down. And that is all I have to say about that, gentlemen. Forgive me for jumping on a soapbox. No, no, no apologies uh, necessary. That was a incredible uh, answer and opinion. And uh, really, that's uh, you know we we don't often get the opportunity to ask questions like that to people who have um, connections like yourself and like Vanessa um, and experience. So uh, just getting that and hearing it is very valuable for for us. I am curious uh, because the Phoenix Colden ca- case or Phoenix's disappearance um, is not the first uh, missing person case you've covered for PIs for the Missing. Is that right? So we did cover um, one case. It, it actually was a, um, it, it, I, I don't, I wouldn't even say it was a, a case. So um, one of the problems I think that we have is in, overload of information problem, right? So it's good and it's bad. And um, sometimes like people, they do these true crime blogs or they do, uh, they, they make these uh, missing persons websites and things like that, and they don't get updated. And this, the same can go for um, uh, many other 
websites um, that even like government websites. And so um, one of the folks, and I won't say his name, um, but he was a local case um, listed as missing, uh, listed as much younger than he actually um, is. And um, so I brought that one to Lou and uh, we talked about it and we said that we were going to go and find um, so we worked together. That was actually the first one that I worked on with him um, and found that this uh, young gentleman actually was not missing. He was uh, alive, working. Um, you know, he had had issues in the past. Uh, both he and his sister were um, frequent, as they said, runaways. Um, and so that would have been the first one. But I worked that with Lou uh, more so. Um, and that was just about the time that Andy was coming on board with PIFTM. And so he, he didn't know he was missing. Is that kind of how I understand it? So there are, um, and, and I also don't want to publicize this site because it actually is doing very, very good work. Um, but he was listed on a very prominent site that features um, some of the, the, the under the cut line uh, children that we were talking about before. Um, and he was still listed as missing. And so it was a simple, all right, I'm going to attack all of the local cases that I can find. Once I found that one, um, I, I decided to kind of go through. And yes, he he was he was not aware that he was listed as missing. Um, one thing that I will say though, and and I think that this is important, there are children that have parents that maybe aren't going to uh, that are maybe not as involved as the Colvins. Um, or they are part of a system, a juvenile, you know, justice system, or or they're in the child protective services, where they're just a number, unfortunately, in that system, and so they're not getting that kind of um, that same sort of uh, publicity, even that that other other children would get. You know, there are no pictures of them or they're very outdated pictures, or they're very bad pictures. So you couldn't even tell if you passed by them on the street. So I tried my best to focus on some of those harder cases. Um, and, and so that's why that one particularly came up, um, just based off of some of the uh, little information we had. Um, he seemed to be an institutionalized child. Um, and so that's why it just kind of struck home with me. Um, is that something that you find is common, the institutionalization of people who are currently missing? I don't think that it's, I wouldn't say that it's common. Um, I would just say maybe those are the ones that kind of tug a little bit at me because, I mean, we're talking about kids with normal, happy families even, those aren't getting publicized. So imagine what it's like for somebody who thinks that they were thrown away by society or thrown away by their families. And so I think that sometimes I want to focus on those um, stories more so um, because there is a story there and, and they should know that there are people out there that are thinking of them and that do care. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Well, let's uh, let's discuss Phoenix Colden's disappearance. And um, as we know, and we've referenced already, um, the first two episodes of our 
series, I guess, on Phoenix's story, um, we had Goldia as as our guest along with both of you. She's great to talk to. She's got a lot of information. And where has this case led both of you? Andrew, you mentioned earlier you believe uh, Phoenix is out there alive and well. I guess what I'm asking is how did you get to that point where you believe that? You know, I, I have to apologize. There is no... There, we have no evidence to suggest anything right now. I'll be honest with you. There's no evidence that suggests one way or the other the fate of Phoenix Colden. Um, it's a at this point right now, it's a sense of belief, and and I share that sense of belief with Goldie and Lawrence um, that that Phoenix is alive and well, and that is the best answer that uh, unfortunately that's the best answer I can give you because we're just there's there is a a lack of um, strong, uh, strong evidence available, at least available to to us as investigators to really make any concrete um, conclusions one way or the other. When the case um, was laid out to you, how how was it laid out? Um, meaning, were you presented with uh, the circumstances leading up to the day she disappeared before you heard? any evidence or details of the car or any phone call or any uh the, the video that's out there was what, what were the order of events really it was just a kind of an overview of the case with lou um once once we got i mean you know uh, just a few few minutes of discussion with him um um, once he said that, uh, we said yes. I mean, we're we're probably never going to turn anything down. Um, but once we we sort of got a quick background um, and an introduction to the parents, I think that a lot of our um, research was just sort of looking through some local news very quickly and just as quickly discounted a lot of it. And so we ended up interviewing and interviewing. And Lawrence. Uh, well, we met them first, um, and that was really the start of our true research. We found uh, where a lot of the inconsistencies were, um, some of the heartburn with uh, how the case was, the, the story, excuse me, the disappearance was portrayed um, in the media and things like that. And so we were able to actually have a baseline to, to go off of um, to, to start our research. Uh, unfortunately, there is a lot of information out there, and um, some of it is just honestly, I can only say it's made up because there's no primary source for any of it. Um, so we we really talked to the parents and took what they had to say in first. More than any other uh, parents of a missing person, a, a child, uh, Goldia and Lawrence, um, we spoke with Goldia more in depth because um, uh, our conversation with Lawrence was just sort of a getting to know you conversation. Uh, they really need to have trust earned um, because they've had people reach out to them and be very passionate about Phoenix. And then from what Goldia was saying, they just kind of go away. They just kind of go away. They don't have an answer, so they move on. And you can see how someone would build up a wall. Uh, how did you overcome that with them? You said you, you spoke with them. I'm guessing you had to earn some some trust there. How did you do that? So I'm going to take credit for this. I used my secret weapon, Andy, to do so. <laughs> so. 
So my family understands uh, one thing is if you are if if you are struggling to make a decision on something, I will talk to you and talk to you and talk to you until you make a decision. Um, and uh, so it, and I and I am a talker, which is is amazing that I've been so silent during this entire discussion. I've I've been pinching myself to be quiet. Yeah. Uh, so no, I, great discussions with Goldia and Lawrence, very enlightening in, in so many ways. There's so much more that, uh, that exists. They are now the, in my mind, the, the keepers of the most important information in this case, until we can get evidence, our hands on some serious evidence, right? Um, whether that's from the police or it's something that's discovered along the way through the investigation. Uh, but the discussions with Goldia initially, yeah, she's like Vanessa said, she's a very uh, thick skinned person, yet principled. And so it may seem that she's easy. She's quick to offend. But I think it's it's an it's an offense to her sensibilities and her principles. And so that's where she takes exception. I had to navigate that. Uh, I say me because Vanessa and I had one first initial conversation with her. I think it was about an hour and a half long conversation uh, with her and Lawrence. There were probably five times in that conversation, that hour and a half where I was pretty sure we were losing the client. I'm pretty sure we were losing her. Um, Lawrence didn't seem too thrilled about opening, you know, opening up old wounds. Understandably, he knows what this does to Goldia. And he's been with her throughout this whole process and, He's, he's tired too. So um, navigating those initial, that initial reticence was, was a challenge. They're less than, well, I'll, I'll put it diplomatically. Goldia could definitely put it the way she wants to put it, but they're less than favorable experience with a particular network, uh, television network or entertainment network, a true crime entertainment network. That uh, was not, was it was not a good experience for them. That, that, um, that two part series aired in 2018. She has not spoken to anyone since that aired. I don't know uh, when, how long before it actually aired that the, that the, the investig the televised investigation happened. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of, like you said, there was a lot of trust to, to earn um, some challenges, some, uh, hurdles to overcome, but at no point did I, I, I you know, I say that I, I felt that we were going to lose the client. I knew we could keep her. I knew we could get her on board with, with getting back to work on this important case, uh, important story. Thank you. Thank you for that. I really do like that important story, this important event, but I knew I could get her there, but I didn't know as a new investigator, uh, how hard to push. I'm not recruiting a, um, I'm not talking to a bad guy here. I'm not, you know, I, I'm talking to somebody whose, whose life has been turned upside down in every direction about their, you know, about something that's just, just twisting them up. So how hard do you push? How far do you go? This is all new to me and Vanessa. We spoke with Lou, got his advice early on. I'm glad we did that. You know, he, he gave us some reality points i think vanessa in an email response you gave us a little bit of a reality check on how it is to work with with clients who might be reluctant 
to do this kind of thing, that this is not new for private investigations for the missing. Uh, this is a very common thing, and, and uh, you guys can attest to that, I'm sure. And I think, too, um, a lot of a lot of what Andy did, I don't know if he remembers um, doing this, but... I was not it, drunk. I was not drunk or otherwise incapacitated. But I think uh, the important thing is that it was a family-to-family um, conversation. So he told them about us and about our children and um, the things that, that we had gone through honestly, and just sort of made, said, okay, yes, we're not law enforcement, which I think was actually a bonus um, for us, what was a good thing. Um, And two, we have kids that are around the same age, and we still call them kids. And that was a a big thing for her. So I think that um, one of the, my my strength is not um, necessarily, you know, the chatty being able to really develop those kinds of relationships with people. And that is Andy all day long. And um, so I would even go as far as to say that they are friends, that Andy and the Coldens are friends. Um, and they definitely know that I'm on their side. Uh, and so I, I think that that's sometimes that's missing with people um, when they're talking to law enforcement and they're in the they're in the mix right then and and the stress is is right in front of them. It's hard sometimes to develop those connections right away, especially because we do overwork our law enforcement officers. Let's let's be very clear. We do overwork them. They don't have the kind of time that we do um, to focus on just one case or just a handful of cases. So I think that that is another thing that private investigations for the missing brings brings to people, brings to families like this. I, I love the dynamic the two of you have. Um, is Do you often play the good cop, bad cop, where Andy is the compassionate one and you're the one who's going in there and shaking them and saying, like, give me what you got. And then Andy's like oh, pulling you out of the room and, and then you have to sit down with the perp. And, and say, you know, listen, she's going to come back in. She's going to be twice as mad when she comes back in. I feel like that's a good dynamic you guys have. Well done. Okay. So I'm, I'm the bad cop. I would have never in a million years. <laughs> we've, we've been told uh, the, the, uh, the Chip and Joanna gains of private investigations. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about the police response on the day that Uh, Phoenix disappeared. Phoenix walked out of her house around 3 or 3.30, and her car was found approximately 5.30-ish in uh, East St. Louis. So they live in Spanish Lake. They lived in Spanish Lake, Missouri. Um, So, and on the other side, Illinois, the other side of the river is East St. Louis. Um, And so they, of course, have two different, uh, you know, state law enforcement systems that they use, uh, different systems that they use for impounding cars. And even so, a lot of people say being so close, they should share information. But I mean, the truth is they don't. The states do the states thing. So um, the car was found around uh, 530, um, was reported uh, abandoned on the side of the road. And here's where I think stories kind of diverge. Um, in like, it's attributed to uh, a random journalist for a St. Louis newspaper that um, 
The car was found with the door open, the ignition was running, and um, it looked like a struggle, you know, uh, just so it looked like somebody was pulled out of the car. And because of that, um, that led a lot of people to go down, um, one, a human trafficking uh, route, and two, um, people started comparing this situation to another situation in Atlanta, um, Georgia, where uh, a lady was found. Um, uh, Stacy English. Yes, yeah, Stacy English. Thank you. Sorry, my, my mind blanking. Um, Stacy English was found in the woods, um, and her car was found in a similar way. Engine running, door open. Um, so, the, that piece of information kind of led um, different investigators down those two paths. Sorry, I just want to interrupt real quick. Um, Stacy English disappeared. It was about a week after Phoenix Colden. Yes. Okay. So that's why they've been kind of connected in that way. Well, and also they're they're connected. They're 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 loosely connected through a gentleman, and I'm going to name him. Robert Kirk is a gentleman who uh, was at that time a music promoter, entertainer, uh, entertainment promoter in the St. Lucie, St. Louis uh, kind of scene. Um, there's a, there is a suspected connection maybe between him, like socially between him and Phoenix and the group of people that she was hanging out with at that time. Uh, the, the similarities in the car that with the, how the car was, the vehicle was found. Um, and like Vanessa said, initially reports were that the, that Phoenix's car was found in the middle of the, the, the lane with the door open and the engine running. Uh, Vanessa, you also said that there were signs of struggle. Uh, that actually, I don't know that, th that that's uh, ever been reported. Yes. So it was, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact wording. And so I, I really shouldn't have characterized it that way. But um, basically, people thought just because of the way that the door was open, it was, you know, in the middle of the road and all of that, right. that it looked like somebody would would have been forcefully removed from the car like it would it's a logical conclusion for most people to think why why is there a car in the middle of the road and if they think that the door is open but then you know later the like we said in yes. the previous interview that information has changed and vanessa you, we talked yesterday about um when, when i kind of gave you an idea of what i was prepared to speak about with this event uh, when i when we were talking about this event yesterday vanessa you talked about memories and what did you say misremembering um yes so so just to clarify the car the um law enforcement officer that was dispatched to the scene um said that he doesn't understand he doesn't know where that information came from that the car was parked off of the road door closed nothing of um um you know, nothing suspicious in the car. Uh, it just looked like it was a car that had sat on the side of the road abandoned um, because it ran out of gas. So that that's, those are his words. That's what he's sticking to. So I just wanted to clarify that. But yes, there are a lot of created memories sometimes with that. You say something or you hear something and then it becomes a memory that you think you had, you know, and so uh, we are dealing with the fact that people um, talked there were a lot of rumors. And so some of these things that are stated as facts are, are just not facts. So um, there is a lot of digging and, and, and kind of analyzing that information to determine what's true and what's not. 
And I would like to go back to thanks, Ness, for clarifying that. And I would like to go back to um, that connection with Robert Kirk that suspected initially he was cleared. I just want to make that clear. He was he was cleared of any wrongdoing, uh, moved off out of the state to another place. I'm sure he's living his life very happily and content right now with uh, the way life is going uh, outside of the spotlight of this particular case. And I uh, by bringing up his name, I am by no means means want to you know, bring any unwanted attention to him personally. However, things um, at that time just looked outside the norm. And that's what Vanessa and I do. We lift every single rock we find. We're going to do it. And, and so I guess that's my message to anyone who might, who might be, who might know where Phoenix is, might know how she's doing today. I, I think I'm just, I'm just going to tell him now, Ness, uh, that we we don't we don't Vanessa and I we do not uh, walk past rocks without lifting them up, and um, I, I do believe that if you know I don't know how long I, I can't make any promises. It's just like I told uh, we we told uh, Goldia and Lawrence we make no promises, but I'm very confident in in our um, in our training, and we just we fall back on our training. That's what we do. We just it's twenty some years. Of living like that, you just fall back on your training, and you, and you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, sometimes we've done. I'm so sorry to take this away from the case, but uh, uh, but it is relevant in the sense that what are we? What kind of resources are we putting towards this? Right, our resources are limited right now. A absolutely, but uh, Vanessa and I are very comfortable, or at least um, experienced with doing more with less. So we're going to make the most out of what we have. And as we get opportunities to gather more tools, uh, more resources, um, we're, we're, uh, I'm, I'm really confident that we're going to make real uh, headway in, in this missing persons, missing persons event. How, how often uh, are you working with the local law enforcement? Uh, that's something that it's interesting. So I have spoken with the, um, I, I don't know if they call it an NCOIC, a non-commissioned officer in charge, uh, but he is the, I'll, I guess I'll call him the desk sergeant for the Maryland State Police. Um, I spoke with him on the phone um, about a licensing issue, about a licensing issue. And that is the extent of uh, our, I believe, our interaction with the Maryland State Police. Vanessa has uh, been preparing a uh, FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act request um, to the Saint, East St. Louis Police Department and the St. Louis Police Department. We don't know if those will be honored because we, are, we don't live in the state. And so if we have to reach out to a, an investigator who does live in the state, I'm sure um, private investigators for the missing can find, help us find an investigator in in uh, missouri or in illinois as needed to to go and do that if that's required um, but that's that, i think that's actually our next move isn't it ness um yes and we we really haven't uh reached out to local law enforcement uh local to missouri missouri law enforcement um very much because a lot of what we want to do is just get the case material um and there is a there definitely is a bit of a um, tent 
there's some tension there in, in the relationship between the Coldens. And so we feel that part of what we're trying to do is just sort of massage um, those relationships as much as we can, uh, you know, um, before we do any digging. And then once we're all able to travel, um, there will be a better, I think, a better opportunity for us to interact face to face. Um, so we're trying to limit a lot of our um, over the phone or, or email conversations just to uh, keep from any miscommunication or any other tensions or, you know, a feeling that we're maybe um, being accusatory because we, we have to, there are people too, and um, that's, that's gone on a lot with this case, um, with several cases actually in Missouri and in St. Louis. So. Yeah, I, I would like to to uh, piggyback on that to use a military vernacular. Forgive me, but uh, to 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 go off of that one, Vanessa, I would say that uh, it it's reasonable to state, as a matter of fact, that any police department in this country that has a that serves a population over a certain number, you know, whatever that whatever that threshold is, they, there's going to be a lot of things that get past them that that slip through the nets. They can't catch everything as a, as a, as a uh, military intelligence professional myself, shame, shame on me that I was working on nine 11. Okay. I missed it. We missed it. We all missed it. Things happen. Um, but I think it's that intestinal fortitude for a police officer to be able to come forward and say, I made a mistake. I would like to help fix it. And here is the information as it really happened. And if you don't have that kind of intestinal fortitude, then you are a barrier to finding out exactly what it is um, that that happened that day. And I would just ask that that person or those people who understand, they just do something. Vanessa, I don't know if you feel the same way on that, but that I just feel that they are absolutely key to moving forward on this investigation. If we could just have them you know, be transparent. I, I mean, I, I, of course, and, and not necessarily with this, but with any situation, especially, especially when it deals with the missing person, um, I, I would ask that everyone be transparent, but um, we have, we, we have to accept also that um, our limitation is really a human limitation. Uh, so there's going to be a uh, protect your job, protect your friends, protect yourself, um, you know, not want to get in trouble, forgetting after all this time, you know, um, so we're going to deal with that. And uh, we're going to just, as you say, you know, I, I'll be the bad cop. <laughs> and uh, I ask that Andy, um, you know, Andy is going to, of course, he's, he's better at kind of massaging those relationships. Um, and, and I think that a lot of uh, those folks, a lot of the police speak the same language as he does. Um, so all we can do is try our best, um, try to overcome those barriers, uh, just like he did with the Coldens. And that's, that's, a, that's funny, you know, that I know it seems strange. I have, during this entire interview, I've been nothing but uh, direct and, and, uh, and uh, kind of bold with my, my statements um, and my judgment. I, I haven't, I don't withhold a lot of judgment on certain things, but, um, but I agree with you, Vanessa, 100% that we need to be compassionate. We need to be patient. We need to be willing to have dialogue with these important people that have information on this case, on this missing persons event. 
and I, and I just want to go over a quick quick detail. I guess the the timeline of um, Phoenix's disappearance. She left her house around 3 p.m. and her car was found about two and a half hours later. So that really isn't a lot of time for her to do something or for something to happen. I mean, I guess it depends on your perspective. I take it uh, Lawrence, Phoenix's dad, did not know where she was going, and the Coltons, they did not know where she was going when she left. And she didn't say goodbye. So what do you guys think about that? And do you know um, what her driving route was? Um, so we don't know the the exact route, um, but we do know that the most direct way uh, from her house to um, where her car was found um, is no more, I mean, just even kind of meandering, no more than 35 to 40 minutes. So um, it's, it's easy for her if she walks out, you know, two hours later, somebody reports or you know, an hour and a half or so later, somebody reports her car missing. I, I didn't see anything um, particularly uh, that stood out about that. But yes, I do think that according to the Coldens, um, she would never leave the house without at least saying something, without some sort of acknowledgement. And so, um, you know, we've had teenagers and um, they have stomped out of the house before without saying anything, but they make sure they're stomping out of the house. And, you, you know, there's always kind of that something that lets you know, okay, well, this person is definitely leaving and wants to make sure that I know. Um, but they didn't have any indications that way. And so, um, you know, I, I do think that that's strange, it, you know, that she wouldn't have said anything if for so long she's that's out of uh, character i guess i should say for her another one of the details that i just wanted to get your opinion on is the phone call that uh goldia says phoenix was on or uh, i don't remember if she said she received the phone call or she made a phone call but she was on her phone uh when they went out and that kind of agitated her what's your opinion on that do you think that that has any relevance to the disappearance I mean, honestly, we couldn't, we really couldn't say, you know, um, there, I, I, I would hesitate to say that that could trigger anything. Um, we do know that there were, there were some tense moments between Phoenix and her parents. And so it could have been, you know, that was a call that she took while she was already angry about something else, or she was fine with her parents. And then that call set her off. Um, we would just be speculating at this point if we tried to, um, if we tried to tie anything together. But um, I will say that there is, um, we are working with uh, the Coldens to get additional information um, and phone records. And I will say that there is um, an unusual pattern um, to the phone calls, uh, there, there were, there, like, there were several phone calls leading up to the, the day of her disappearance. And then, um, they completely stopped afterwards. And I know that this has been, um, speculated about as well, um, in several different, um, um, areas, but, uh, I would say that that is one one thing that we would definitely like to look at as well as the presence of more than one cell phone, which also um, could lead, lead one down a, a certain line of thought. 
Yeah, we don't have we we also have the ability to do uh, forensics on on these phones, right? And and we don't know what forensics have been done by the by law enforcement. Uh, I'm assuming they've done some. We don't know what the results of those forensics were. So that that kind of again ties our hands as investigators on that part until we can get that information from them and then help them with the investigation. Vince, I want to go back to you pointing that out earlier. It really should be a partnership. I don't under. Maybe it's because we're not cops, Ness. Uh, heck yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that uh, what Bruce is trying to provide with private investigations for the missing has that uh, element to it, a very uh, heavy focus on making this a Swiss Army knife for the for law enforcement. And you open it up and you have investigators that span the country looking into several different cases. And who knows, a decade from now, 15 years from now, it's synonymous with, um, you know, NamUs or, or one of those uh, one of those organizations um, and very productive, uh, very, uh, very motivated with individuals like yourselves looking into these and not just focused on the details of a disappearance, but nurturing relationships with families just the peace of mind that's another uh element that i know bruce is very uh heavily focused on is allowing or providing peace of mind to families and providing relationship to families and that that is really goes much further than i think people think uh, that someone knows Hey, someone's looking into this. You might not have all of, you might not solve, you know, a particular one. You might not. You you may, but just having that that person to go to, those people to go to, and and check in, and vice versa. I think that's a, a often underrated element to the whole thing. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers, but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.